Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. Before we get started today, a reminder that you can join me for free every Thursday night, writeyourscreenplay.com slash Thursday. This week, we're going to do a throwback to Pulp Fiction. I recently rewatched the film in preparation for a ProTrack mentorship session with one of my students, and I realized there are so many lessons in this film that will be really valuable for you all. Because Pulp Fiction on its surface seems to be completely revolutionizing what structure looks like. It comes out of order. It has these long, long, long scenes. It has monologues. It has dance, right? It has all these things that we don't typically see in movies, right? It looks like it's doing something completely wild and complicated, and yes, it is. But at the center of Pulp Fiction is something so incredibly simple. We talk a lot in this podcast about getting in touch with your voice. Um, and if you've taken my Write Your Screenplay class, you know that there are actually four phases of writing, and the phase where you're getting in touch with your voice is really just one of those phases. One of the phases that we haven't talked a lot about on this podcast is the audience draft phase, right? How do you manipulate the audience? How do you manipulate the audience's expectations? How do you surprise the audience? How do you track the journey that the audience is having in the way it relates to your main character's journey? But there's a deeper thing that we can do with the audience draft, which is sometimes we can use the audience draft to actually push ourselves past our own inner sensor. In other words, by surprising the audience, we can also surprise ourselves and we can also surprise our characters. And this is what Pulp Fiction so brilliantly does, is it sets up really clear expectations. So, for example, in the first scene, we're going to watch this loving couple, Amanda Plummer and Tim Roth, plan a robbery of a diner. And we think we kind of know where we are. Oh, these crazy people who are so madly in love with each other are going to rob this diner and we're going to watch their little heist movie. And their expectations around robbing the diner are set so clearly, right? They've talked about all the hard places to rob and why the diner is going to be the easiest possible place to rob. And once you set those expectations, you know it can never happen like that. You can never give them what they're expecting. You can never give your characters what they're expecting, and you can never give your audience what they're expecting. It has to happen in a slightly different way. So how do we surprise the audience's expectation? Well, rather than watching these two, we cut away and suddenly we're in a completely different story. And that's a shock for the audience. The audience is going, oh, how are these two things going to match up? How do you surprise their expectation? Well, that's going to come a little bit later. But you can see there's something kind of drifting there. There's like an extra string just kind of dangling there, right, that we don't forget about even though we lose track of it. And we're going to cut in on Vincent Vega and Jules Winfield. That's John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson, the two hitmen. And they're having their famous Royale with cheese conversation. And we're going, oh, these are hitmen, but I've never seen hitmen like these before, right? Every time I see hitmen, you know, they're like, you get the corner, I'll get the back, right? Everything's so serious, right? And these guys are talking about hamburgers. 
right? These guys are playing little status games together, right? These guys are mostly shooting the shit before they pop in on the poor kids who are gonna, about to get shot. Jules actually says to Vincent, all right, let's get in character. But, with, but, but the heat of the scene, what the characters are actually fighting over is not the hit. What the characters are actually struggling over is, was it right what Marcellus Wallace did to the guy who hit on his wife? Now, really, this is a little bit of exposition, right? This is for the audience because what we don't know is that John Travolta is about to have to take care of Marcellus Wallace's wife. This is just a little bit of exposition, but what Quentin Tarantino does so brilliantly is you don't feel it like exposition. You don't feel it like exposition because these characters are fighting over it, right? Because these hitmen are having this philosophical conversation about what's right that they disagree about. So again, what's happening is Tarantino is setting up some really clear expectations. Yes, the hit happens and Samuel L. Jackson has his brilliant monologue that we're actually going to hear three times over the course of the movie. His little quote from the Bible, right? We know that's coming and I will strike down upon thee with furious anger, right? We know we, we're going to get that. We're going to get the badass hitman stuff that we are expecting. But we're not going to get it in the way we expected. We're going to send John Travolta to go take care of Mia. That's the Mira Servino character. That's Marcellus Wallace's wife. And we're going to hit the idea again and again and again and again and again. Everybody who talks to him is going to kind of warn him, this is freaking dangerous. Marcellus Wallace threw a guy out a window for giving Mia a foot massage. And so the expectations are really clear. We know what's going to happen. We are waiting for John Travolta to cross the line with Mia. We are waiting. We are waiting. We are waiting. And Mia is playing a little game of seduction. She's not going to let this just be a boring platonic day. She wants to dance. She wants to win the trophy. She wants to push things. Similarly, John Travolta... He just wants to keep this really safe, but he's going to end up asking her about Marcellus Wallace and what he did. And she's going to give him a completely different story. Does that seem reasonable to you? She's going to give him a completely different story that makes him go, hmm, maybe this isn't so dangerous, right? She's going to encourage him to cross the line, and we're going to watch him want to cross the line. And we're having a fabulous time watching it because we know exactly what's going to happen. So we send them to the dance contest, and then we waltz them back into Marcellus Wallace's house. And they're so comfortable with each other, and they're so connected, and we're just watching. In fact, we send John Travolta to the bathroom, and he has this conversation with himself in the mirror where he says, this is a test of loyalty. You're going to have one drink and you're going to go home. This is a test of loyalty and loyalty is a very important thing. We're still watching the same game. We know exactly what's going to happen and we can't wait for it to happen. And you know what else? Vincent Vega knows exactly what's going to happen. 
He knows what he wants and he knows what Mia wants and he knows what he's fighting. We're both telling ourselves on both the me draft and the audience draft level exactly what's going to happen. And that means it cannot happen that way. So of course, what happens? Instead of sleeping with him, she ends up finding his heroine while he's in the bathroom. And we know from some very carefully laid in sequences that she is a coke addict and she thinks his heroine's cocaine. And she ends up overdosing on Vincent Vega's heroin. And then we have that crazy sequence that ends with him stabbing the needle into her heart. And finally, the sequence where they finally get their comfortable silence together um, when he drops her off for the third time at Marcellus Wallace's house and they agree to keep the secret. So we know something awful has to happen that puts him at risk with Marcellus Wallace. If that doesn't happen, we're going to be disappointed. We're going to feel baited and switched. But it can't happen exactly the way we expect. That's the simple idea that I want you to keep in mind. It doesn't have to be so different. In fact, it does have to do what we're expecting. Just like if we didn't get some badass hitman stuff, we would be disappointed. If Marcellus Wallace didn't have a reason to kill John Travolta, we would be disappointed. It's got to happen, but it can't happen exactly the way they expected. Not the way the characters expected, not the way the audience expected. Your job on the audience draft level is to set up the audience's expectation of what exactly is going to happen so you can surprise it. And you have the exact same job on the me draft, on the character draft level, which is to set up the character's expectation of exactly what's going to happen so that you can surprise them. Your job is to make sure that both your character and your audience are predicting a story that's not going to happen exactly the way they expected. So we've got Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer, the loose thread of these two characters who, uh, who want to rob this diner that's going to be the easiest thing ever. And then we've got this other thread of Vincent Vega, the hitman, who has a new relationship with the most dangerous woman in his life. Meanwhile, there's another thread that's been built, which is the Bruce Willis thread with Butch, the boxer who Marcellus Wallace wants to bribe to throw a fight. And we know exactly what's going to happen. We know Butch is not going to throw the fight. We know Butch is not going to throw the fight because we're a smart audience. And we're watching this tough guy get bullied. The guy doesn't want to get bullied. But we also know he's not going to throw the fight because the game of Pulp Fiction is Marcellus Wallace is going to freaking kill you. That's the whole game. That's the game with Travolta. And that is the game with Butch. So even though Butch says yes, we are waiting for him to decide not to throw the fight. We've seen this movie before. We know who he is. He's the proud boxer. But it can't happen exactly the way we are expected. So yes, Butch does throw the fight because Butch not throwing the fight would be a much more boring movie to watch because rather than having the pressure of this killer, Marcellus Wallace, after him, we would have, what, a movie about compromise? Well, maybe that would be a good movie too. Maybe it's worth watching the 
fighter who compromises himself. But we don't know enough about Bruce Willis for that to land, right? We're not already in love with what a great fighter Bruce Willis is for that to actually land. So instead what happens is it can happen the way we expect. We cut back in time and we see Bruce Willis as a kid and we see him receive his father's watch. And we don't know what this means. We don't know why we're here. It's not happening the way we expected. That watch is left like a little dangling thread. But what ends up happening is when Bruce throws the fight, our expectations are met. But that watch ends up becoming incredibly important because we watch him. He's got everything prepared to be on the run. He's got this beautiful relationship with the perfect, supportive, way too young girl. And then suddenly we realize, and he realizes, she's forgotten the watch. And we watch Butch go back to get the watch. We also see a dark side of Butch come out. We see the control side of him. We see the cruel side of him. We see the why is he with a woman who's so young for him, right? So we get a different portrait of Butch. And we get a different story about Butch, right? On the phone, Butch says, you know, I don't really care, right? I don't care about anybody. I'm just going to get rich. So we have this new portrait of this guy. We're starting to understand it's not just about the fight, that he's actually bet on himself now that people knew that the fix was out, right? That this is not a moral guy holding on to his center. This is a guy who wants to get rich and who wants a woman he can control. So we're watching this really interesting character who doesn't really care about anybody. And we know exactly what's going to happen. He's going to go back and Marcellus Wallace is going to kill him. We also know that John Travolta has been pulled into this. Vincent Vega has been pulled into this. And we have another little dangling thread, which is Samuel L. Jackson, Jules, is not with him. We don't know why, right? It just raises a little question on our head. We've seen Jules. We've seen Vincent a couple of times, but we haven't seen Jules. We know something happened. So just like that Tim Roth, Amanda Plummer thing, we got this other little dangling thread, just like the Mia thing. We got this other little dangling thread. We don't know what's going to happen, but we know it's not going to happen exactly the way we expect it. So we are just waiting for Travolta to kill Bruce Willis. We know that's what's going to happen. Instead, what happens is Bruce Willis enters the apartment, gets the watch, and sees a giant gun left on the table. You can see this is much a surprise for Bruce Willis as it is for us. On both the me draft and the audience draft level, we are surprising both the audience and the character at the same time. So what happens? <laughs> well, there's been a running thing that Vincent Vega is constantly excusing himself to go to the bathroom. Vincent Vega comes out of the bathroom and Bruce Willis blows him away. And we are totally shocked. We know that John Travolta has to get in trouble because this thing has been brewing with Marcellus Wallace. His life needs to be at stake. We've been waiting. But it doesn't happen exactly the way we expect. And it certainly doesn't happen the way he expected. He thought that the danger came from Mia. The real danger came from Bruce Willis. So Bruce Willis takes off. 
and we know it's going to happen. He's going to sail off happily into the sunset with this sweet young girl who is way too much under his control. And that's what we want to see happen, right? We're waiting for that to happen, and we want that to happen. If Bruce Willis ends up dead, it's not going to feel like a happy movie. And look, let's face it, this thing is a, supposed to be a joyride. But it can't happen exactly the way we expect. And it can't happen exactly the way he expects. So he thinks he's home free until who does he see crossing the street? He sees Marcellus Wallace. And he does what any reasonable guy would do, which is he runs Marcellus Wallace over. And again, it can't happen the way we expect. We got to push it further. Marcellus Wallace doesn't die. And Bruce Willis's car crashes. And we have this awesome concussed chase shooting sequence, right? The one we've been waiting for where Marcellus Wallace finally shows off his badassery. And we have the big fight we've been waiting for between Bruce Willis, where Bruce Willis's skills as a boxer give him the upper hand over Marcellus. And we know what's going to happen. Bruce Willis is going to get to go free. And that's what we want to happen. But it can't happen exactly the way we expected. So what happens instead? What happens instead is the gimp. What happens instead is Zed is dead. What happens instead is two very creepy, very racist, very horrible men decide to go all deliverance on both Marcellus and Bruce Willis. We have been waiting for Marcellus Wallace to kick some ass. Instead, Marcellus Wallace ends up getting raped by two crazy, sick, deranged people. We have been waiting for the showdown between Bruce Willis and Marcellus Wallace. And that showdown's happened, but it hasn't played out the way we expected, and it hasn't played out the way they expected. Of course, Bruce Willis ends up freeing himself. It's a little bit of a cheat, but it's what we want to see. He ends up getting his hands untied, and he does what we expect him to do. He's a guy who doesn't care about anybody, and Marcellus Wallace is, wants to kill him. And he's already screwed Marcellus Wallace once. Marcellus Wallace has tried to kill him. But he does something interesting. Rather than being the evil man, he decides to be the shepherd. Rather than being the evil man, he decides to go save Marcellus Wallace. So what ends up happening is these two men that we expected to try to kill each other end up becoming each other's savior. We get another beat on we're going to keep this secret, just like Mia and John Travolta or Vincent Vega decide together. And we finally do get to the wrath that we anticipated from Marcellus, but it ain't going to happen to Bruce. Instead, it's going to happen to the guy who raped Marcellus. He's going to get medieval on his ass. So all the things we expected happened, right? This is what's been set up. What's been set up is Vincent's going to get in trouble with Mia, and he does. 
what gets set up is Bruce is not going to throw the fight and Marcellus is coming after him. And it does. But it doesn't happen the way we expect. And that's what makes it so much fun. So this is left as one more dangling thread. And we cut back in time. And there's Vince of Vega again. We're not expecting that. Right? We're not used to moving around in time like this. And there's Jules again. And we missed Jules. And they're in the car with the kid. And we know what's going to happen. They're going to play their little intimidation dick game. But it can't happen the way they expect. So what happens instead? They accidentally blow the kid's head off. And now they've got a problem, which is a car that is completely covered with blood. And we get the whole fix and we expect this guy to come in and be a genius. But it can't happen the way we expect. So yes, he's a genius. But what does he really do? He basically tells them to clean up the car, right? He actually gives them the simplest advice possible. And so he does save them, but not in the way we expect. And what happens is that little thread gets completed. We find out what happened to Jules. We, ha we find out that Jules decided to retire. And we track Jules and Vincent to the diner where they're just going to get some breakfast after a crazy day and finally kind of chill out together. They're wearing their goofy civilian clothes because their cool badass suits are covered with blood. And we get another little fun payoff, which is we've seen Travolta wearing a different tie and we've been curious about why. And now we actually know why. And we realize, oh my God, they're at the diner. And suddenly what happens is we know exactly what's going to happen. That thread that we've been waiting for with Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer, knowing that, that that's going to ha is going to be the hardest heist ever. And we know why, because it's Jules and Vincent <laughs> that they're going to end up trying to rob. And it does happen. It happens exactly the way we expect. They do try to rob Jules. Vincent, of course, is back in the bathroom. They do try to rob Jules. And Jules is the guy with the wallet that says, badass motherfucker. Jules is the worst possible guy for them to try to rob. But it can't happen in the way we expect. So what happens instead? Yes, Jules is not going to allow himself to be robbed. Yes, Jules is going to take control of that situation. But instead of it turning into a badass fight sequence, it's going to turn into a spiritual journey. Br Jules is going to open the briefcase. Tim Roth is going to behold the light from inside. The thing that we'll never find out exactly what it is, but just maybe is the Holy Grail. And instead, he's going to deliver for the third time that little sermon. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger, right? We're going to get that monologue again. But it's going to go even further. He's going to talk about the idea that he thought that was just some cold-ass shit to say. But now he realizes what it actually means. He's going to go through three different permutations of what it actually means. Maybe 
it means you're the evil man and I'm the righteous man. And Mr. Nine Millimeter here, he's the shepherd protecting my righteous ass in the valley of darkness. Or it could mean that you're the righteous man and I'm the shepherd and it's the world that's evil and selfish. And I'd like that. But that shit ain't the truth. The truth is, you're the weak. And I'm the tyranny of evil men. But I'm trying, Ringo. I'm trying to be the shepherd. What actually happens is we watch an evil man decide to try to be good. To try to decide to forego vengeance to try to become the shepherd in the same way that Butch became the shepherd. And because of that, we get a happy ending, not only for Ringo, Tim Roth, and Amanda Plummer, but also for Jules. Jules gets to go on the same journey that Butch gets to go on, which is letting go of vengeance and trying to be the shepherd. All the things that we expect in Pulp Fiction happen, but they don't happen in the way we expected. So one last thought that I want to leave you with. In your own writing, as you build, I want you to think about creating those loose ends. See, you're not going to know right away what has to happen. If you know right away what has to happen, it's probably derivative and boring. We're probably seeing it coming. And guess what? Your characters are probably seeing it coming. Instead, I want to encourage you to build those loose ends. To let those things simmer in the background of your head going, I know this has to happen, but it can't happen the way I expected. I want to challenge you. Yes, surprise your audience, but use the surprises for your audience to surprise your character, to knock them off course. And finally, I want to encourage you to knock yourself off course, to let go of a little bit of that control, to write that crazy scene that comes to you where you suddenly see Butch as a child and you're like, why am I there? To allow your movie to unfold or your show to unfold or your novel or your play or your comic to unfold in a way that, yes, hits those beats that are in your outline or hits those beats that are in your head, but doesn't hit them in the way that you expected. Leave those little dangling ends and ask yourself, how do these little dangling threads come together in a way that I didn't expect? If you want to learn more about how to build your screenplay in an organic way like this, check out my website, writeyourscreenplay.com slash WYS for my Write Your Screenplay class where we learn the foundations of seven-act structure and how to build your screenplay and your structure organically. That class includes a one-on-one -on -one consultation with a professional writer. And as always, you can find a transcript of this podcast and all my podcasts on my website at writeyourscreenplay.com slash podcast. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like and follow for more and come study with me every Thursday night for free, writeyourscreenplay.com slash Thursday.